Welcome back to the Feed Your Brain podcast. Max on this side, Mike on the other side, and we have a special guest, uh, Stefan Heller, um, visiting us, I think, right now, usually from Munich, but he's uh, in, in travel mode right now. Uh, so he will explain why uh, and, and where he is, but um, he is the founder of AlphaQ, um, and he's going to explain a bit more. He has a very interesting background, working in scale-ups, building his own companies, now investing into uh, VC funds. Um, so there's a lot to cover. Stefan, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Awesome. Good to uh, good to see you uh, again uh, virtually at this point in time. Uh, maybe for the listeners, since I think your background is uh, quite diverse and you have quite a lot to, to cover, maybe you can give us a, a kind of quick rundown on what you have experienced in the last kind of <laughs> maybe 10, 15 years. And, <laughs> uh, but it maybe point, point, out, point out some highlights. As you know, we have people working in startups, so I, I'm pretty sure they're interested in your story at this point. Yeah, super happy. I mean, um, I mean I, I'm, I'm from Munich originally, so I grew up there. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm 36 now, so I was born in the 80s. I got to use computers quite early. My dad gave me a computer when I was 10 years old. And so I got into the early internet, um, uh, learned how to code, um, played around a lot with computers, also the hardware. And so that's what really what drove me. Like I was, I really fell in love very, very early with computers and the internet. Um, and so when I was in school, I actually started to code and build a social network uh, called CityRocker.de that morphed into a party photo sharing community. Um, in, in boarding school, unfortunately, also browser games were blocked back then. They were all built in Flash. And so I, I did a big mistake that I learned how to build Flash games. Uh, so I could build within my own um, within my own website, which wouldn't get blocked. I could build my own browser games and Flash games. Um, so I wasted two years of my life building and learning Flash, which uh, isn't really used anymore. Um, so that was, that was sort of my start. And then, um, I studied communications actually in Vienna in my bachelor. Uh, so a little bit different. Um, my dad also studied that. So I, I thought it's a good idea. I wasn't quite sure what to study. Um, I was selling websites on the side and through the websites, I got more and more into photography because a lot of my clients, they needed photos for the websites. And so I was doing more and more photos. Uh, and through the photos, I got introduced to more and more girls who wanted to take their pictures taken yeah so uh, through that i came into um taking photos for models and and stuff like this um and i opened a small photo sh studio and through the models i got actually introduced to bankers so that was my like i was 21 or so and i got the first time i got to meet bankers partying with the models and i thought like okay this is kind of cool right they have money and they have all the girls so actually i should become a banker so that was a pre-financial crisis obviously and I, I really thought that's a career. So I then, uh, in my master, decided to uh, focus on corporate finance and I studied business um, and I wanted to be a banker. Uh, then the financial crisis happened. Uh, being a banker wasn't that cool anymore. So I initially, uh, I started my career in management consulting and then moved to Rocket Internet. Uh, and through Rocket, I came to Groupon. And Groupon was sort of my my start in the in the startup ecosystem. I worked there in London. Um, um, joined in 2011, so I did really this roller coaster of a scale up, uh, crazy IPO, uh, massive expansion. You know, 42 countries, 14,000 people, uh, 20 billion market cap, going down to a 2 billion market cap, going down to 4,000 people, closing down countries, um, and all the operational problems that are actually happening. And 
it's quite funny how history repeats itself. So every time I look at kind of the quick commerce startups or some of these like hyper growth um, scale ups that are really operationally heavy, um, I kind of see the same problems that happened at Groupon already. So it's it's really always very, very similar. Um, in 2015, I moved to Berlin. I co-founded my first startup called Watchmaster. It's a luxury watch e-commerce uh, business that's still around. Initially, we were buying the watches on our own balance sheet um, and had to compare different financing options to do so. Uh, I found the process with banks really stupid and annoying. It, it, it was like, in, in German, you say a salami tactic, right? So they kind of never say no. Yeah, and they also don't say yes. It's always a maybe. And you had to send more and more documents. And uh, you have to meet them every time face-to-face, -face, drink shitty coffee, go to their retail location. And so I thought, hey, why is there no digital process for this? Why is there not a nice platform that makes this easy? And so I started my next startup called FinCompare uh, that helped uh, or is still helping SMEs find, compare, and close the best financing solutions. The company uh, morphed into a software-as-a-service platform, so, uh, so SaaS-enabled marketplace, um, and was sold to a banking group in Germany last year. Um, yeah, we had to sell it. Unfortunately, COVID wasn't that great for the for the for my fintech. It was very good for the watch business because everybody started to buy watches online. Um, so yeah, that 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 was sort of my my startups over the years. I've then started to do more and more angel investments, and uh, I've learned that angel investing is fun, but it's actually work. So <laughs> everyone who wants to get into angel investing, I can I can only recommend you think twice about it because it's not necessarily about the money. It's more and more about your time. So if you have like 20, 20 investments, there's like there's like obviously a couple of winners. Uh, there's a graveyard, so there's a few dead ones. Uh, but the worst ones are like the zombie startups. They're kind of half dead, half alive. You don't know where they're going. Every year they do a bridge round. They have a management change. You need to read documents. Kind of, it's like it's like a never-ending story. It feels like that, which is important, right? It's the reality of an entrepreneurial journey, but. If you are treating this as an investment, it's actually kind of annoying. Um, and so I thought, look, why is there not an ETF on top of venture capital uh, together with my partners? And and so that's how we started AlphaQ to create an innovative, unique fund of fund structure that actually has the vision to be listed on the stock exchange and therefore really democratize access to venture capital. So all of us, all of you can invest um, through Trade Republic or whatever, wherever they have a brokerage account. They can actually buy shares in AlphaQ and through that participate in the value creation that is actually happening in the early stage uh, startup ecosystem. Yeah, so um, a little summary on, on how, how I got here. <laughs> Very interesting. Let's start with the Groupon journey because it's almost this like urban legend in the startup scene, how fast it grew right wasn't it the like the fastest company ever to hit a billion dollar market cap yeah back in the day yeah so like many people have heard these like crazy stories but maybe you tell us a bit more like what you learned there what are things you would like to copy what would you like to avoid um just because this like groupon just has this special place in the in, in the legends that founders tell each other no absolutely i i, I think uh, groupon I hope somebody writes a book or does a documentary on this at some point, right? I think the learnings there were fantastic. And also the team. I think one, one thing that was that made Groupon unique back in the day, and this, especially in the beginning and in Europe, was that every week, um, you know, I just finished my university. 
Um, I was working in a consultancy, as I mentioned, at Roland Berger, and I had friends at McKinsey and other uh, consultancies. And every week I received an email from somebody quitting their job at McKinsey and going to Groupon. And I thought, I thought like after, you know, after you've received like 10 or 15 of these emails, you think like, look, I've, I've, you know, six months ago, I went through the application process with all of these consultancies. And I thought these are the smartest people in the world. And I really want to work there. Why are they leaving? Why are they going to this like crazy deal thing? Right. What is this? Yeah. And so, um, once you work there, you actually, and, and for me, this was very lucky because I was, um, senior enough. So I kind of, I, I was in the leadership realm. So I got to know a lot of the problems and the insights of the company, but I was so, I was junior enough to not be in the, in the sort of firing zone. Right. So I kind of was like, um, it was a very nice, uh, learning experience in that sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, initially I, I joined, um, to help in the travel vertical, to help launch the travel vertical in the UK. My boss, actually, uh, Maria Raga, she left Groupon and founded Depop, which was sold for over a billion last year, I think. Uh, so very successful founder as well. Um, she, um, sort of the, the manager that took uh, after her was Remo Gerber. Uh, he was also formerly from McKinsey. Um, he then afterwards became the CEO of Lilium, who took the company public. So like th these were the people I was working with. All of them became very successful founders of working in the startup ecosystem. Um, but the mistakes uh, that everybody had to make back then, because it was such a crazy growth phase, um, they were like, you know, you couldn't have fixed it, right? I think the problem is the Groupon tried too many things at once, but they, they did the, have the potential to really change an industry, local commerce, which is still one of the largest industries. They had these big sales teams. They had all these merchants. So everything that you see now in restaurant bookings, even quick commerce, ordering from, like booking any kind of service. Um, Groupon could have owned all these verticals. The problem is they didn't really focus on the operations and execution too well, right? Or they focus on it too late. I, I feel that was the problem. So... Uh, yeah, through that journey, we obviously had to hire a lot of people. You, the, the hiring mistakes were made. Uh, countries were opened without clear strategies or or basically copycats were acquired. And so going through that journey and then initially launching travel, then later doing the post-merger integration between Groupon and City Deal, where we mostly did Salesforce and operational alignments because all these you know, all these bought companies that were merged, only the front ends were merged. So all the back ends were still kind of local versions, right? And so it was completely impossible to actually build a great tech platform, yeah, to build, to, to make it more efficient for the customer. And so we, we tried to solve that. And then the last year and a half, I, um, I launched um, B2B marketing for EMEA because we've learned that, okay, Groupon has become a brand. Um, having these outside salespeople running around is super inefficient at some point. And so we learned that if you're using inbound marketing tactics, it starts to become much more scalable and you uh, basically the merchants reach out to us. And so um, there's a much higher chance of closing them. Yeah. So yeah, going through these different experiences where you manage a sales team in the travel vertical, you manage kind of sales operations and tooling in my sort of second gig there. And then my third gig managing like large, large scale inbound marketing uh, teams. And um, yeah, that learning curve was fantastic. So I can only recommend to young people, if they want to get into startups, to actually try to go through that scale up phase. Yeah, because these phases are actually super rare. Most companies do not really get there. 
Um, so unfortunately, uh, I mean, Groupon is still around, but Groupon didn't live up to its expectations, at least. Um, but the learning curve and the people I've met there, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Just one follow-up question, because you, you mentioned an interesting point here that could be interesting to listeners, right? I mean, um, how would you uh, select a fast-growing company? Uh, what have you learned looking at different ones? And I mean, you look at them also as part of your angel investments. If you would recommend a couple of pinpoints to people that want to join scale-ups, what should they be looking for in order to ensure that they actually get the growth curve that they that they're looking for? Well, I, I think it, it's a bit of a difference when you say growth and really scale up, right? There's like it, it, Groupon obviously was already quite large and, and, and just grew extremely fast. Yeah. So comparable to, I don't know, Gorilla, Sketchy and all these quick commerce players today, or maybe the Amazon acquiring businesses like Razor Group and stuff like this, they're also growing super fast. Um, so I think, I mean, I would look out for obviously the team, like how's the founding team or management team? Is this like a diverse group of smart people I want to work with? Are these like seriously smart people or are these like just some buddies that got together? Yeah, I think this is also you want to learn from smart people. Um, and I think that was very important to me. Um, then I look would look out for obviously funding, right? So is the company well funded? Because at the end of the day, it's also about money Yeah, for startups. Yeah, so um you you need to look for the, in this growth phase to have companies that are really well funded yeah? and that means you know have raised 100 million plus rounds and um from that obviously the expectations are created with investors you need to grow you need to deploy that capital uh, and you need to grow and i think that's then a kind of nice intersection um to come in if you're like a you know smart junior coming out of um business school or some like um you know, you've, you've maybe also failed with your startup. I've seen this many times when I hired, um, hiring young founders that actually tried a startup. It failed because they made certain mistakes. They couldn't fundraise. Somehow the market wasn't there. It's all fine. But then they join. They they kind of work as a entrepreneur in residence or something like this directly for, for a leader, uh, sometimes a co-founder. And then they leave again after two, three years and they start their own business and then they become super successful. Yeah, because going through the motions and learning it is, is actually is very helpful. Yeah, that's that's usually what I try to recommend as well. Like there's two things that you can do, in my opinion. One, you just found your own company because you'll always learn something, right? Yeah. And if you pass a certain bar, if you have like a like a certain skill set or certain like network already, you'll always get something out of it definitely you'll become a better founder if you actually found a company because you learn just so much from it and the other thing is what you just said like trying to work with people who are great founders or work in companies that are just growing extremely quickly because you just see what works and what doesn't work and the funny thing is and you probably like have experienced that as well even companies that are growing extremely quickly and companies that are doing really well from the outside there's so much so many fires burning inside so oh, yeah, it's always about which fire do I put out first and not necessarily like, do I put out all the fires? Mm -hmm. um, transitioning that to like, I, I would love to like spend some time on your current project. But before we do that, um, talking about FinCompare, your last company, you said you had to sell it because of COVID. Um, like that sounded to me like a little bit, uh, I think that you like would have preferred not selling it and just continue building it. So how how do you personally deal with that kind of i mean it's still like a positive failure right you made an exit out of it but how do you deal with that as an entrepreneur and how do you like basically go through it and then just start the next thing 
I mean, think compare. You could probably do a the whole a podcast series on the mistakes I've made. Um, so, <laughs> we, we, if if listeners want to listen to this, they should let you know, and we can do a spin off. Um, I mean, there must like we were we actually grew very fast in the beginning, right? And we've raised uh, ten million Series A, which you know back back in sort of two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen was a lot and was a big Series A. Um, and yeah, we, we, we had a really nice growth curve. And then we grew as in, in terms of people. Um, the problem was with FinCompare, I was almost like a solo founder. So I hired co-founders, which wasn't a great idea because being alone is super shitty, right? I think that uh, I would never like want to recommend this to anybody. It's a kind of very lonely experience. Even if you have good leaders, you're always kind of the bad guy because you're in between your investors, your leadership team, and you're wedged in between. And you don't really have anybody to share openly your what's going on in your life, yeah. And so I had a managing director. It, it didn't work out. Like we had issues with him, um, and there were complaints about him. So we had to uh, we had to let him go, yeah. Um, and the problem was that he then stole our our idea, and he took some salespeople with him, and he basically copied our business. So this was kind of you know hit in the face pretty much one yeah where somebody that you trusted you paid a nice severance package you kind of wanted to stay friends and he kind of uh, poached your top sales guys and cloned your your idea uh, that you founded and started and you think like okay the world is against me let's go to war yeah and i think you know once you start going to war you're distracted it's not great for the business in parallel we were still growing so we hired a great executive team um we then did a 12 million um, round just before COVID. So everything looked quite nice. But obviously, you had this legal battle with this competitor. Um, you you kind of, I had to work really hard to get this round closed. You suddenly like 60, 50, like 50 60 people. Uh, so, you know, everything starts to become a serious business. Um, and then suddenly COVID hit. Yeah. And so COVID was really like our revenue curve before was nice, looking like a nice hockey stick kind of. Uh, growing, you know, 10% month on month, 15%, right? Really nice trajectory. And then suddenly COVID hit and like our revenue just bam, stopped. Yeah. And this was not because we didn't have any businesses. We actually had most requests of businesses coming inbound during COVID, right? So the, we, we immediately shut down our marketing, but it's still so many businesses just came to us because they needed financing. They were really struggling. Um, and so we had to move back into more of an early stage mode because we couldn't um, work based on our established uh, kind of processes. We had to find new processes and new products. So we then learned how to do subsidies. We partnered with like uh, government uh, banks and, and these things. And these are new processes. These were also expensive to kind of uh, implement. And then at the same time, one of our investors, uh, we I don't know, we made the mistake to take a bank and a strategic investor. One of our investors called us and said, look, we have a new CEO um, just before or during COVID. We actually switched CEO. Our new CEO is the CFO. And he has actually fired all the venture people. There's only two people left in the team out of 20. Um, and now all the startups have to present a plan how, how long they need to get profitable. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You invested six months ago on this business plan. And now you want this like in this crisis. You expect me to kind of create a profitability roadmap for you. Um, yeah. And so this like added up to, so at some point I just thought, okay, I'm fucking frustrated with this thing. Um, it's like, 
where does this take me? Yeah, so the, there were only two choices for me. To option one was, okay, I'm going to fire all this like executive team and just go back to an early stage mode, keep kind of my best developers, my best sales guy. We're going to be 10 people. We're going to be locking ourselves in uh, for the next 10 years and maybe it will work out. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, we noticed, okay, more and more strategic buyers were kind of interested in what we have built, yeah, our technology stack and our platform. And so the other route and the other option was obviously, okay, let's sell what we have. Um, it, it kind of lets do a bridge round. So all the investors who want to participate, pay to play, they can, uh, can make some money, right? And a lot of them did and they made, they made their returns. Obviously, it's not what anybody would have expected, but, you know, we, we tried to make the most out of it. Yeah. And so I just, for me, like there was so much pain that just went into this and so much blood, sweat and tears, personal commitment, you know, working really for, for, three, four years, not sleeping, not having a personal life in that sense. And suddenly this whole thing starts to fall apart and you don't even have investors that support you. It felt like that at least. Um, and so I thought for me personally, look, I can't go back into this early stage mode. I'm just going to be burned out and I'm going to be super miserable. So let's just sell it, right? I think we have an asset. We don't need to go bankrupt or anything. Um, but I don't think the team can, can do an early stage job and they can run it on their own. But they can, if they work for a corporate, they have a safe haven, right? They can they can continue to do their job. I save their jobs. I kind of save the company in that sense that it will live on. Uh, and so that was very clear for me, the decision. Um, the only thing that was also clear, I didn't want to be part of the asset and I didn't want it to be personally sold. Uh, so I wouldn't have to be the innovation digital dude for a bank for five years or something like that. Um, I thought, yeah, so I kind of had to find a way to kind of uh, personally face into a board role more and uh, get out of the operational day to day. Uh, but we managed to find a good solution there. And at the end of the day, it all worked out. Thanks for sharing. Um, and also thanks for, for being so transparent, right? I mean, I, I agree with you, actually, that maybe there is a good timing to go a bit deeper into this. I think all of the questions that you've mentioned uh, could be very, very interesting to founders being in that same stage or potentially going through that uh, that phase but however alpha q is 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 is, is definitely uh, as interesting to listen and, and and learn a bit more about what you are building now because it, i mean it didn't take you that much time to rewind set back and start something new again so uh um, tell us a bit more what are you doing now <laughs> yeah no for sure um yeah it's like my monkey mind kind of has to start start stuff all the time so um <laughs> um no i think alpha q the whole idea started really with my with my uh co-founders and partners uh, marcus burner oliver oster and marius weber uh, we've been close friends uh, marcus and ollie actually angel invested in fincompare marcus sat on my board um so we've known each other for for a long time and we always spitball ideas like you may do with your friends right and and so we it was like a year and a half ago and we were on a phone call. I was actually driving to go skiing in the mountains and we were on this phone call and we were all complaining about our angel investments a little bit. Yeah, I need to go to Rotary. Did you read this? My annual report is like expensive and takes time. And I mean, these are German problems. Yeah, so maybe it's not that big of a problem in the US, but in Germany for sure. And, and so we're like, hey, why is there not an ETF on top of venture capital? That was really the core idea where we said, hey, during COVID, probably all of you sat on the couch, started to invest uh, in stocks more, started to day trade and play around with, with stuff. Yeah. And 
I'm a shitty trader, right? In that sense, I don't like actually trading. I don't like to be online all the time. I want to focus my time on my family, my friends, or my my real job. And uh, the same is true for my startup investments, right? I kind of want to set set it on an autopilot and participate in certain trends. I believe in, right? I kind of want to bet on trends. I want to have at least that control. And so. Yeah, that's how we really started. We said, okay, let's build it as a stock corporation, so similar to a Berkshire Hathaway um, that can actually list at some point on the on the public markets. Um, uh, we we then got in touch with some investment banks that wanted to represent us. They recommended, okay, look, we can spec this. We actually want to spec this. So that was the initial idea to make it into a spec. Um, but that doesn't kind of make sense because if you spec it um, and it has to be um, from the investment banks, they said, okay, if you want to make it into retail, it needs to be at least a billion in assets under management. And so if we, we, we calculated it and if everything would have gone well and you have a billion suddenly in dry powder, um, the ROI would actually not look that great because you kind of need need some time to deploy that capital. And so we then said, okay, let's let's go down a different route and start this in the private markets. And just over a period of four or five years, let's let's work our way up. Like let's do a rolling close. Let's invest that money. Let's build up the the portfolio, and then list the whole structure on the stock exchange. Yeah, and I mean we are investing in venture capital funds. Each venture capital fund is following a certain vintage, right? They come back every you know one year, every two years, and start a new fund. And so it's a nice way to over time build up exposure to different vintages. Um, different strategies, emerging strategies, emerging markets sometimes even. And that really reduces volatility, but it doesn't reduce the upside of the individual funds. And so then we thought, okay, cool, we can really build this up in the private market. And by having this target size of a billion plus, uh, we, we were approached suddenly by really large investors. Yeah, So suddenly large pension funds, large endowments talked to us and said, look, we need to deploy at least 50 million or 100 million or sometimes even 200 million. Um, our our ticket size is too large for the actual early stage VC funds we focus on because most of these funds are below 500 million. Yeah, And so that is really a, a problem that we started to see that we were solving for these large asset allocators. And venture capital in Europe and generally has been a cottage industry, right? It's a, it's a, it's really an amateur industry almost compared to private equity or hedge funds or la- other larger asset classes. But venture capital is maturing, right? So you see over the last 20 years, VC in Europe, there were some great funds there. VC in the US obviously has performed extremely well and it's becoming a global phenomenon. So you see more and more startups popping up all over the world. The same is true for funds uh, because the knowledge has been democratized. And so more and more asset allocators are trying to look to access the asset class now that we are in a, in a time of you know, crisis, inflation. You don't know really where the world is heading. A lot of investors are looking for to go more and more into alternative assets. Yeah? And so picking and making these returns becomes even harder. And so I think we were a little bit lucky maybe also when it comes to timing. Um, when, we've, when we started it and um, there's no other comparable vehicle to us in Europe and we have a global investment mandate. Um, and yeah, now in December last year, we've received our BaFin approval the finish the fund structuring and um yeah now it's uh, the, the the cat is out of the hat <laughs> yeah i mean the idea itself is almost as old as we see right people have talked about it a lot i know that it has been tried before but never really successfully and there are 
many reasons for it, right? It's very complex, both from a legal perspective. You need to be trusted by very sophisticated stakeholders as well, right? There's a lot of money involved if you want to do this right. So you need to you need the right team. And then also they need to trust you to make the right investment decisions. And that's what I would like to focus on next. Um, how do you actually screen for the funds you invested? Because you say, I think you over 2,000 funds screened or something like that, only a handful that you invested in. But what is your actual strategy on deciding who to invest in? Yeah, so I think, you know, this asset allocator world where we are currently in, this is um, this in itself is a cottage industry almost, especially when it comes to venture, right? There is, um, we are not bankers. I'm a hardcore founder and entrepreneur, and, and, and so are my co-founders. And we really see an opportunity here bringing our skill of building products, building building tools, you know, but at the same time, you know, building relationships with corporates, selling products B2B. Yeah? And I think that's that's really the uniqueness of us, that we are not, you know, bankers at a, at a large bank that suddenly decide, oh, look, there's 10 clients that want access to venture. Let's build them a small product. But we really think big and want to have a really big vision that we're working towards. Maybe we'll never reach it, but that's that's not the point, right? It's about how do we get there. And for us, we're trying to combine two things. One is really technology, yeah, that we are building up a strong database, that we are building up uh, uh, tracking tools that really suck in uh, as much data as possible, normalize it, clean it. And so this allows us to track um, the funds, but also all the individuals. Like we track it down to a founder level and even executive level of the startups. Uh, because we believe, and that's the second point, we believe that VC, with all the cool tech you can build, is still a people business and it will remain a people business, especially in early stage. Yeah, So you should not underestimate the power of network effects that exists in individual ecosystem, whether that's the Munich or Berlin ecosystem, the London ecosystem or the Tel Aviv ecosystem. Yeah, And so we have really looked at that. And so we've built up our LP base as broad as possible in order to have in all, all these individual ecosystems, unicorn founders, VC partners, etc., personally invested into our fund in order for us to get access to um, the local ecosystem, yeah, emerging managers, uh, but also tier one funds, uh, as well as LPs. And this has worked quite well, yeah. Our team um, has, has has been extended significantly. Yeah, we have four founders, but by now we're 12 people, uh, and we've really built this like a startup. So we've um, put in our own money, uh, we've raised a bit of capital, uh, and then we've hired a great team of very senior people to help us on that journey before we even had the fund structuring finished. Yeah, so there was really like a pre-investment and taking also a risk in that sense um, that is helping us now. Yeah, so we have our chief investment officer. She's coming from Allianz, Nina Fichte, uh, where she's uh, done the direct investments into N26 and Auto Eins, but she's also done 35 fund investments. Um, she did her PhD with Anne-Christine Achleitner at uh, TU Munich, which is a very uh, well-known um, professor um, for, for venture capital and private equity. And um, our team in Tel Aviv is coming from Vintage Investment Partners. Vintage is one of the largest fund of funds, um, independent fund of funds, three and a half billion AOM. Um, one guy was the COO, CFO at Vintage for the last seven years. So he did all the compliance, all the investor reporting, all the tooling also. So he brings a lot of experience from, from that angle from the ops and back office and middle office angle. And then the second guy, he was the investment director at the fund of funds. So he actually has done for over five years, 
the VC investments and he has screened all these funds. So he comes also with his Rolodex, with his experience of what to look out for in funds. And I think combining that sort of human brain power experience with our experience of building tech companies, of executing, of kind of bringing this kind of team all together um, is what makes us unique and what gives us access to really fantastic fund managers. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually, like, as I mentioned earlier, like specifically know your CTO and know that he's really good at what he's doing. So like overall seems like a, a great team. Yeah, big, big shout out to Mark. Yeah, at this stage. Yeah, but <laughs> great dude. And I think also, yeah, we have a CTO, right? Which fund do you know? Um, which LP do you know that has a CTO? Yeah, there's, uh, we, we have not come across anybody. And if they say they have a CTO, that's the guy that kind of fixes their laptop, right? It's not really <laughs> the same what we have. Yeah, And I think this, this, you know, we laugh about this, we joke about this, but, you know, Mark's superpower of really being able to handle big amounts of data, of really building up great products, working with developers all over the world. He was one of the co-founders of Hacker Bay, um, lived in Silicon Valley. The startup got funded by NFX. Yeah, So also one really uh, famous and, and great fund in the early stage uh, segment there. And this, again, is about people, right? Mark is not just a CTO. He's also uh, has a seat in the table, right, when it comes to scouting new funds, building this whole company. And I think that's really, really important that we look at it holistically and that everybody in the team has a certain you know, founder background or investment background. And therefore we have such a, you know, good trajectory right now uh, because of that track record of everybody that's coming together. Yeah. Stefan, do you have 10 more minutes? Because I know we're almost on time. Like, do you have 10 more minutes or how are you, how are you doing, Thomas? Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I only have to go for drinks, so we have time. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, one follow-up question and, and I hope, Mike, I, I don't disrupt kind of your, your path on that part. Otherwise, uh, let me know. But um, I... I looked at kind of the numbers and again, and I've seen that. Um, and I think you actually also do a great job on kind of reporting uh, certain trends in 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 in, in US uh, versus kind of European um, VC investments. And one of the things that I've seen uh, in, I think in it was the kind of the reporting numbers for 2021, which was basically that kind of the European VC investments are actually growing uh, at a faster pace right now than US VC investments. And, and of course, this whole crisis that we're seeing right now in Europe maybe has some impact on uh, certain changes as well that we might be seeing at the end of this year. Um, looking, I think, you investing into VCs, how, what kind of trends are you foreseeing? Where's the VC space going potentially in the next couple of years based on your insights um, as, as basically somebody investing into these VC funds? Are there things that you can already share that you're seeing right now that would be interesting to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I think we, we we are going into a phase of the next decade where it will be harder and harder to actually make returns. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of the capital has not been returned to LPs. So it it, it will be an interesting um, journey for a lot of the funds with, who could fundraise very easily the last years. Yeah. But I think for us as a as a sort of fund of fund that, that is also doing secondary. So we are buying LP stakes at, at good discounts. Uh, but we're doing primaries and we're doing this on an ongoing basis with this with this evergreen structure. And I think for us, it's actually kind of a nice part to get started, a nice time to get started, because if if we see this correction in valuations, the new funds that are being created right now, they will actually perform really, really well. Yeah, because one of the big things that we still believe in, and that's kind of the overarching vision is it does not matter what happens in the short term. We see is a long term asset class. And do we believe that tech 
and software will continue to eat the world. Yeah, I mean, it, anybody who I ask is kind of nodding, right? So are you, right? There's like, there's very little doubt that um, old school companies will suddenly start making innovation. Yeah, so I don't think ThyssenKrupp or some like old school German Mittelstand company will suddenly start to make uh, cool apps or something like this, right? And um, the same, you know, we see these tech shifts happening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about low orbit satellites and things like this that they will bring to um, how artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, um, edge computing will work. So there's there's a lot of excitement about deep tech uh, in general in the team. And there, I think, to your question also, what is happening in Europe, we obviously see that Europe has massive potential when it comes to deep tech because we have these great universities, we have great research. and Again, the knowledge of the startup ecosystem that has been locked in Berlin or maybe Munich is more and more democratized and is moving to great universities. So we have seen, for example, in Finland, in Tempere, um, it used to be one of the development uh, locations for Nokia. Um, and so in this university, there's so much great research happening on mobile and, and kind of camera technology. Uh, and so there's a lot of um, support that came from the Finnish government and there's like sort of public money funneling into the startup there. There's now a second and third generation of founders popping up. There's more and more funds there. And so you see these emerging vibrant ecosystems. And I think this is what excites us. And that's why we look at it from a really global um, perspective, where are these new ecosystems uh, popping up um, even within Europe, where 60% of our investments will go to Europe and Israel because that's where we have really a team and, and boots on the ground. Uh, 30% will go to the US and then 10% will be rest of world. Um, but obviously this may shift over 20, 20, 30 years. I don't know when, when we'll allocate more and more to emerging markets because I don't know the Philippines, Brazil uh, and markets in India, for example, FinTech in India is just booming. Um, and so, yeah, this is really uh, interesting from, from our angle. The other thing was what we look at is really we follow a barbell investment strategy where on one hand we invest into tier one established funds. So these are at least three fund generations of proven track records, realized IRRs. Um, and, you know, these are big brands that you may know. These are sometimes or very often highly oversubscribed fund where it's really hard to, to kind of get in. You kind of need to build relationships. You need to become a value at LP. Uh, since we were founders, or we are still founders, I still see ourselves as such, um, we obviously know a lot of the, the managers, a lot of the fund people um, for for a very long time, and that's how we are, we get access to some of these funds. Yeah, And, and on the other hand of the barbell, we invest into emerging managers. And this is uh, this is really interesting because the emerging manager scene is so, so vibrant. It, it feels like the startup ecosystem 10 years ago where you have so many emerging managers coming out of large funds um, and specializing on certain niches, yeah, really specializing on the intersection of biology and tech, yeah, or the intersection of yeah fintech yeah, and, and things like this, right? So, um, I think this emerging manager world where we see in the US more and more solo GPs really performing, um, and you know, first one or two fund generations really being um, breakout funds, yeah, that can return a hundred x sometimes, yeah, depends a little bit, yeah, but there's there's a lot of things happening in that space and. These funds are really small. So they're extremely fragmented. They're like, you know, 20 million, 10 million sometimes, really tiny funds. And so that becomes really hard for large asset allocators to tap into. And that's, again, why do you need a fund of fund? Yeah, so we can break these large tickets down into these smaller funds and therefore 
uh, create extremely good returns by kind of tapping into that opportunity and being extremely selective about it. How do you? How are you selective about it? Again, it's a founder skill, right? Who do you want to work with? Who do you think is a great partner that you would take money from? Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's not just about spreadsheets and looking at their track record. It's really about can you can you judge the human that does the job? Are they really hustlers? Do they do they go after the deals? Uh, do they help the founders? Um, because at the end of the day, the VCs only will win if the founders will win. And that, again, is one of our unique skill sets in the team where we can help um, asset allocators who normally don't really understand what skill sets are required in that early stage of, of, a, of, of the startup cycle, right? We, we focus on early and early growth, so up to maybe Series D E funds. Yeah, We don't really do funds that are in late stage, private equity style um, structures. And yeah, this is, where, this is where I think most of the opportunity will lie, at least for the next two, three years, yeah, until we see the market shift again. Um, but uh, we are very, very excited in general about tech, about startups, and about um, all the problems that we have to solve in the world, uh, because big problems like climate change is an example, right? You, you, I, don't, I don't think climate change will be solved by just putting up more, more um, windmills or solar panels but it will be solved by technology, yeah, by, by new startups finding new ways for us to, um, to communicate, to travel, to do mobility, uh, to consume. Um, and a lot of this will be backed by venture capital funds. So helping asset allocators to participate in this is fantastic. And then later in our vision to list it and allow anybody in the world to put it into their savings account, into their retirement planning. I think this is a really great vision that, that uh, motivates us. Yeah, and I definitely subscribe to that vision and think that private innovation is extremely important in combating many of the things that are happening in the world, especially, and I don't know if that's just because I'm biased, but I feel that often newer, more innovative companies also have more of an impact angle to it than like some of the older, more established companies. That's not always true, but I think that's at least a, like, a general trend that I'm seeing. And I mean, we could talk about like everything for hours, right? For example, about the shift of like like late stage funds going much earlier and then the late stage ecosystem currently like being a bit problematic and then that trickling down. But what I'm actually excited about before we wrap it up with our like usual last question um, is uh, we talked a little bit about the different ecosystems and you talked about the regions. And one of the questions that I discuss a lot with my European friends, specifically also with my European friends who moved to the US to build companies, why don't we really have any global players that originated in Europe, right? Like there, there's many US players that dominate the global market, but not, not really too many from Europe. Yeah. Um, like, why do you think that is? But specifically also, and we could talk about this for an hour, so let's try to keep it short. <laughs> like, why do you think that is? Like, what's your hypothesis? And then also, what can we do to change it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's, in my, in my personal opinion, there's really two things. One is really that the internet right now is very much consumer internet driven. Yeah? And just the US players, they have a much larger one language, one market. It's kind of much... Um, yeah, it's more simple to launch something like this in the US, like Facebook, where in Europe you have all these different regulations, you have all these different uh, countries with languages, currencies uh, initially, right? So this makes it uh, much harder, you know, 20 years ago to start these global businesses out of Europe. So we see global businesses um, 
in the enterprise and, and, and SaaS world, yeah, where we see actually European champions like UiPath, for example, yeah, where, where that, that have been very successful, but they're just not that visible to the end customer, yeah, I feel. Um, so, so I think Europe has always been doing a great job when it comes to B2B businesses and enterprise businesses. The problem there sometimes is, and this is sort of the second point, is that growth capital, and this means really large growth capital, is, is, was, and it still is really rare in Europe, right? So to close a, you know, to close a 10 million round in Europe is, is kind of okay. But when we want to close a 50 million round, 100 million round, um, it starts to become impossible. Yeah, there's just there's just no funds. There's no LPs that that can just do it. Yeah, there's more and more a little bit, but there is super few. And the most of these funds that can actually write these large tickets, which are required if you want to build global champions, um, they're in the US. So a lot of the startups then either uh, fail to raise funds in the US because obviously US fundraising requires to also have a US presence a little bit. Um, or you kind of move over there, right? So the founders have to move over there and suddenly it becomes a US-based company. Yeah. And this, I think these are kind of the two major drivers. Yeah. Um, the US remains the largest pool of capital in the world. Yeah? And I think this will remain, right? Even if times get tougher and, you know, it's harder to, to allocate and it becomes harder to pick targets. Um, also, some startups will fail, but we will see that I think this this trend will continue that the winners and the early winners and the, probably it will get even earlier, they will get more money. Yeah, so I think the doubling down on the winners will will happen much sooner um, and uh, much with much bigger rounds. Yeah, and this will this at least I hope yeah <laughs> will create more and more global players coming out of Europe and hopefully coming out of you know serious hard tech, deep tech, um, and, and and these kind of businesses where I just believe that we have a really a unique uh, market positioning across Europe because of our strong engineering talent, uh, because of our strong research, where the thing that most universities have only been lacking is the understanding of venture capital, how to you know spin out patents, how to get, actually educate engineers not to work at Siemens or some like large corporate, but actually take the entrepreneurial journey, take the risk, yeah, write a business plan and uh, raise venture capital, even if it sounds dangerous. Yeah, it's, I think this is a really important uh, journey and we see more and more universities, um, the best practices there are really, I think, in Munich, where you see with TU and, and uh, Unternehmertum and, and these initiatives that Munich has really created an extremely strong uh, startup ecosystem around the university. And more and more universities are copying that. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, that will hopefully create some European global champions. Yeah, I love that. Like we, I think you basically almost word by word said what Max and I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you have you have two very big proponents of your hypotheses uh, right here, and I think it's a great way to close it off because we like we are obviously from Europe, right? I moved to the US, but like I I still like many of my friends are there, my family's there. I have like my plans are to do business in Europe as well, right? And I think the startup scene has so much potential in Germany, but then also overall in Europe. And I, I, I love that people are actually working on um, making it more global. Maybe to like really quickly close it off, do you have any content recommendation for our listeners? Anything that you really love, whether it's fiction or nonfiction? I mean, content recommendation, I, I really like... Um... Um, Ray Dalio's book. So if you if you 
if you probably have read them, um, I, I really, really admire, I really admire these books and, and sort of his thinking. And um, I mean, these are long books, yeah, uh, but they are really great and worth, worth to take, um, take the time to read. Um, and then I have one more book on management that I've got, I've got recommended almost like 15 years ago, but I've never read it. And I only recently read it. Um, and it's, I think it's called the score takes care of itself from Bill by Bill Walsh. Yeah. One like the U S uh, the coach of the San Francisco 49ers. And it's, it's such a fantastic book. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm not really a sports fan, but I've got really more and more into sports because of this of coaches. Yeah. I love the Netflix documentary about the Chicago Bulls. And I think there is so much that founders can really learn from athletes, from professional sports and especially coaches. Yeah. Because as a founder, as a CEO in the beginning, yes, you need to build a lot of stuff and you need to do a lot of the shitty work too. But at some point you just, be a, you just have to be a coach, right? You just have to manage a leadership team. And if you went through these journeys that I went through, like always growing companies from zero to a hundred to 150 people. And then life got difficult for me always. Like I always kind of struggled with that and I saw it group on, um, yes, you can solve some of that with money. Just if you continue to throw money at the problem, you will also grow, but it will all will implode at some point. Yeah. Um, and, and everything is kind of solved when you understand how coaches work yeah, and how they, how they really get the most out of their, out of their, out of their individual experts. Uh, and applying that to startups, I think this is where I'm really passionate about now to become a better manager, to become a better leader, and to learn from some of these um, experts. I love it. And yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. We highly appreciate it. We are very excited about the Fund to Fund concept being built by actual entrepreneurs and not just people in suits who have used Zoom for the first time. I have to wear suits. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to wear suits sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? It's it's more the analogy, not really. Like I, I, I talk to like many like big investors as well because we are a fintech, so I had to raise money from like non-traditional people. And there are some who are extremely smart who try to understand like new asset classes, but it's good if change comes from within to some degree. And I think that's something that you're trying to do and achieve with a roster of very talented, hardworking people. And we are excited about it. So our fingers are crossed. We'll follow the journey. Maybe we'll do a, an update at some point and hope you have a good rest of your evening and enjoy your drinks. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was, was a pleasure. <laughs>